chapter. Father in heaven, be with us now as we open the desire of ages and as we think about the great prophetic trajectory, the great prophetic calendar and clock. I pray that we would come away with a better understanding of where we are in the great calendar of time. And Father, that we would be mindful of the times in which we live. Father, help us to be aware of things both important and urgent and to be able to distinguish between those two is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. On the way over here, I normally drive a little backcountry road, but today when I tried to drive the backcountry road, there was so much snow still on the road and there was a large truck. I had to actually reverse, 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 reverse all the way back up this country road. And then I got on the main road, which is also a country road, but it's a paved road, and ended up sort of going down for about a mile and a half and then taking a right and come to my neighbor's place. Well, I noticed something when I made the turn to come into my neighbor's place that, and maybe you've noticed the same thing, and I hope that you're not a practitioner of this, but it seems to me that that everybody is on their phone while they're driving nowadays, and obviously not literally everybody, but is anybody else noticing, like, I've made it a point now when I'm sitting at an intersection to look and see how many people are on their phone, and today when I took a turn to come here, the lady at the intersection, not a stoplight, not a long stoplight with a big line of cars, she's just pulled up to the stop sign and she's looking at her phone like this and she's driving. I sometimes see people driving these gigantic delivery trucks or semi-trucks and they're, <laughs> they're, they're looking at their phones. Ah! Right? And, and I'm not going to say, look, I want to be totally honest here. There are times where I will glance down at my phone because I don't know, I try, try, try not to. Very often I'll put it out of my reach or I'll put it in my pocket or something. So I'm not looking at it. It's not dinging. But I just feel like I'm seeing people all the time. In fact, I used to actually ride a motorcycle back when I lived in Michigan. And that was right with the advent of cell phones. And I was like, yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not. It just felt really dangerous, right? To have people looking at their phones and you be on a motorcycle. Anyway, so... The illustration that comes to my mind about this is that, that people are torn and they're, they're, by the way, study after study has shown that human beings, the vast majority of human beings cannot keep their mind on two things at once, right? There are, there's a very small percentage of the population that can be looking at one thing and thinking about another or reading something, but also that, but that's a small percentage, unless those two things are the same kind of thing, like you're looking at your notes and listening to a lecture, okay, but to look at one kind of a thing and then be doing another thing, it's very, very difficult. And only a small fraction of people can actually do this. And even then they don't do it perfectly. Well, talking to somebody on your phone or looking at a text or whatever is a, is a certain kind of thing. And you perceive that thing as urgent, right? You, you perceive it as urgent. The, the reason that you're looking at it right now and not when you could be looking at it or when they could be looking at it five minutes from now, 10 minutes from now, 15 minutes from now when the trip is done is because it feels urgent. Like, oh, I got a text from my friend or oh, I got an Instagram notification or something. But the thing that you're actually doing, i.e. driving a car is important, okay? And urgent things can be important and important things can be urgent, but they are slightly different. Driving a car is a very important task. It's like I tell my sons, you're basically driving a giant bullet Right? The thing travels very fast, it's made of metal, and if you're inattentive, it can injure or hurt other human beings. And so people are doing this important thing, right? So this is a very important thing that's happening in the world. You're driving a large killing machine. 
right? I also know that it's used for transport, but, but basically it's, it's very capable of ending people's lives if you're inattentive. So you're doing this important thing, but then there's this urgent thing that you just can't take your eyes off of. And I thought to myself, that is a tremendous segue. I just saw it on the way in, a tremendous segue into our chapter today. There's this important thing that's happening, i.e. Messiah has arrived, the prophetic time clock is fulfilled. We're living at a very, you know, the, the Jews of the first century were living at a very important time, a prophetically significant time, but there were other things that had their attention, other things that were occupying their attention. So the important thing was lost sight of because of the urgent thing. The thing is, is that the urgent thing, and I use the air quotes there, is not really urgent. You know, the Instagram notification, the text, the FaceTime, not really urgent, right? You can do it when you get to your destination or you can do it before you leave. And so today's chapter was an interesting chapter. You'll notice that it doesn't say that it's based on any particular passage. If, if there was a passage upon which it was based, it would be Mark chapter one, verses 14 and 15, which is the very first paragraph. And I'll just read that because it'll set the tone for us here. Jesus came, I'm gonna set this here. Jesus came to Galilee preaching the kingdom of God, saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Jesus' arrival in the, in the Middle East, in and around Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, at this specific time, this place, this time, was not serendipitous. It was planned. There was a calendar. There was a clock. There was intention to it. And it had been anticipated by a great many what are called Messianic prophecies. That just means Messiah prophecies. And many of those Messiah prophecies had to do with the character of Messiah, the work of Messiah, the death of Messiah, the ministry of Messiah. But, but particularly with regards to the prophecy of Daniel, it had to do with the, all of those things, but also the arrival, the timing of the Messiah's arrival. Okay? So, so, the, the arrival of the Messiah is a very important thing, but other urgent things, again, urgent in quotations, had occupied the mind. And you're gonna see where this chapter ends. It's a very appropriate thing for us to take stock and to say, hey, am I maybe guilty? Am I maybe in danger of doing that very thing? Being occupied by the seemingly urgent when a super important thing is happening right in front of me, a super important thing that could endanger my life or the life of others, okay? So what happens in that, that second paragraph there is, is Ellen White just goes through like a recap, right? She just sort of sets the stage and she talks about, it's really in that single paragraph, almost a summary of the preceding 22 chapters, right? She does a really good job. She just summarizes all of the things that we've covered up to this point. And the, the centerpiece of this passage and the, the verse, uh, the centerpiece of this chapter is the passage, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Ellen White has done something that you might've noticed, but you may not have noticed. And that is that she's switching tracks here. She's switching tracks. We have been on the track of the narrative of John's gospel. Okay, so we have in the New Testament, four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you may be aware, you may not be aware, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes referred to as the synoptic gospels. I don't know if you've heard that term before, but synoptic sounds synoptic, S-Y-N, which means same, like synchronicity or synthesis, right? So, and then optic 
sight. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke are sometimes referred to as the synoptic gospels, the same cited gospels, because they largely, not exactly, but they largely follow the same pattern of Jesus' ministry, where he was, what he was doing, the things that he said. John's gospel is the, the anomaly here. John's gospel is very different. It's unusual. It doesn't, it, it has some significant overlap, of course, with the synoptic gospels, but, but John is writing a, a different kind of gospel. And we've talked a little bit about the architecture of John, 21 chapters. The first 11 chapters are basically, um, oh, the better way to say that is the last 10 chapters are basically the last week of Jesus' life. And so a very different kind of gospel, but in the opening of Desire of Ages, we have been not entirely, but largely on the track with John's gospel, right? So we were in John 2, John 3, John 4, John 5, right? This is not entirely, but largely you have these sort of these, remember Jesus started in Cana, went to Jerusalem, back to Cana, back to Jerusalem. And the ministry of Jesus in Galilee is not always easy to find exactly where that fits in the synoptic gospels. And when an attempt is made, and I suppose to some degree the Desire of Ages is an attempt. It's not a formal attempt at what's called a harmony of the Gospels, but it is, it is a chronological or at least roughly chronological treatment of the life of Jesus. And so there are a number of harmonies of the Gospel out there, and, and you can find out real quick where are the events and what are the events that we're not quite sure if this happened and then this happened or did this happen and then this happened. And again, I don't think that Ellen White is setting out here a formal harmony. I don't think that that was her purpose. Her purpose was to tell the story of Jesus and to incorporate all of the gospel voices, all of the gospel accounts. But what we've done is we've now switched last chapter, which was imprisonment and death of John. Remember, we were in Matthew 11 and Matthew 14. And then for today's chapter, Mark chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. And if you, if you actually, and I did this this morning, if you go and look at the rest of the chapters, we're in chapter 23 here. We don't return to the Gospel of John until chapter 39, 39, 16 more chapters because we've done John 1, John 2, John 3, John 4, John 5, and we don't get to John 6 until chapter 39, okay? So what this chapter today is doing is it's a what I call a bit of a prophetic breather. We're just taking a breath and then we're gonna, well, last chapter and this chapter, we're switching over to the synoptic description of Jesus' ministry, right? So we're gonna be talking, all of the passages from here until 39 are based on Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, Matthew, Mark, Luke, okay? So that's one of the big things that's happening here. And Ellen White, I think very wisely, sort of zooms out and takes stock of the prophetic picture, the biblical picture, and of the circumstances that led up to the large, not the universal, but the large rejection of Jesus by the, the Jewish religious leaders of his day. Of course, we've already talked about Nicodemus and how those seeds were sown. And the book of Acts says that some of the priests will become believers. But it's not an exaggeration to say that by and large, Jesus' messianic identity and mission was rejected by the religious leadership of his day. Okay, that's fair. That's a totally fair statement as opposed to just saying the Jews rejected Jesus. That's an untrue statement. It's a non-careful statement. It's an offensive statement. It's an unnecessary statement. That's, it's not even true. The early disciples were Jews. Jesus was a Jew. Most of the early believers were Jews. So what we can say is that it is true that 
by and large, the religious leadership of Jesus' day, as well as not just the leadership, but some of the rank and file, um, you know, citizens of the various towns and villages that Jesus is visiting, they did not receive Jesus as Messiah. And she's going to set that up. Why? Why not, right? We've been in John 2 with the cleansing of the temple. We've been in that incredible, hostile dialogue that Jesus has in John chapter 5 with the religious leaders. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. These are they which testify of me. So we've encountered the hostility. We've encountered the conflict. We've encountered the denial of, and, and remember, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven times in chapter 21, to, the effort by the religious leaders was to kill him, to kill him, to kill him, to kill him, right? That, that comes right to the forefront. And so there's this collision, this conflict and hostility. And what we're doing here is we're stepping back and saying, why? Why the hostility? Why did they miss it? And of course, the big answer to that is, is that the picture of what they were looking for, what they thought Messiah was going to be, and what Messiah actually was were two very different things. Okay, so that's where we're at right now, and we're going to sort of set this up. Now, the first thing I want to say here, as we get into this, is this, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. Okay, repent and believe the gospel. The word repent, it's a very important word, and if you look up the word repent in the Greek, it's actually a very interesting word. The word is metanaeo. Metanaeo, and the word literally means to change the mind, to change your mind. So you could summarize, I think I wrote this down here. This phrase, repent and believe the gospel. By the way, I'm not getting any feedback right now on Instagram. Can somebody confirm that we're still going? Just looking here. Somebody says that the live video has frozen on YouTube. Okay, I got some people telling me it's still going. All right. Um, Instagram, I, I need you to stay with me, right? Because this is the video that if it doesn't work on YouTube, we upload. Okay, so the phrase repent and believe the gospel, the word repent, metanaeo, means to change the mind, to change your mind. And so you could summarize repent and believe the gospel because the gospel is the good news of God's faithfulness in Christ. And I just wrote this down like this. Repent and believe the gospel could be change your mind and trust in God's faithfulness revealed in the Messiah. Change your mind by trusting in God's faithfulness as revealed in the Messiah Jesus. That's what repent and believe the gospel means. Okay, so this idea of repent and believe the gospel. So then she goes through that sort of summary section there. We're now on page 255, 255, 232 of the original. And one of the things that she says here several times is that God's call, God's purpose, God's intent for the religious leaders was that they would, top of that page, carry the gospel to the world, that they would become heralds, that they would proclaim his message. These are all direct quotes and carry the gospel to all nations. Well, I wrote in the margin here, this was always God's intent. This is the Abrahamic, I wrote it right here, Abrahamic promise and intention. Abrahamic promise and intention was, I will bless you and you will be a blessing. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And she begins this paragraph with the word if. If the leaders in Israel had received Christ, he would have honored them as his messengers to carry the gospel to the world. If. I think we've mentioned just briefly, in fact, early on, we talked about what's called a counterfactual. 
And a counterfactual is something that has not happened but could have happened, right? If this had happened, then this would have happened. Yeah, we did talk a little bit about counterfactuals. And God's knowledge, God's exhaustive knowledge of the created world is such that he not only knows what has happened, what will happen, he knows what could have happened. And that knowledge of what might have been, God's knowledge of what are called counterfactuals is sometimes referred to God's middle knowledge. That space between what has happened, what will happen, what has happened, what will happen. God is aware of everything that could have happened. And, and here what Ellen White does is she introduces a sad note of a counterfactual that if the religious leaders of Jesus' day and if the Jews wholesale had received Jesus as Messiah, then God would have honored them with what? With a higher salvation, with a better state? No, no, no. The honor was not a special genetic, regional standing before God. The honor was to carry the gospel to the world. The honor was to be the messenger, like John the baptizer, right? John the baptizer knew he wasn't the guy. He was a messenger. I'm the voice of one crying in the wilderness. That was a high privilege, an incredible privilege. And that same kind of privilege, by analogy, could have been that of the Jewish nation. To carry the gospel to the world, to them was first given the opportunity to become heralds. And I'm just so thankful that again and again and again, Ellen White shows, even when she's not directly quoting Genesis 12 or the narrative of Abraham, she's showing that she understands that God's promise to Abraham was always inclusive and global. It was never regional and genetic and parochial, okay? And she, she illustrates that here. Um, she talks about how the jealousy and distrust of the Jewish leaders had now ripened into outright hatred. We've already mentioned how seven times in chapter 21, she says expressly, which she's picking up from John 5 there, they wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to end his life. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. They wanted to kill him. And so um, because in Judea, in and around Jerusalem, Jesus was largely not getting traction, she says that he turned to another class to proclaim his message and to carry the gospel to the world. Then she makes this really great application here, and it's an application that is a little autobiographical, and I actually wrote that in the, in the margin here. Autobiographical application, and she tells the story of how Jesus' withdrawal from Judea to Galilee is being repeated and has been repeated throughout Christian history, right? And I'll just read you some of that. As the light of the life of men was rejected by the ecclesiastical authorities in the days of Christ, so it has been rejected in every succeeding generation. Again and again, the history of Christ's withdrawal from Judea has been repeated. You, you with me? So she's making this really cool application. Jesus withdrew from the religious leadership. And we've mentioned how one of the sort of, you know, stories of the Gospels, particularly in the Gospel of John, is that when Jesus goes away from Jerusalem, he has success. When he comes back to Jerusalem, he has conflict. The further that Jesus gets away from Jerusalem, by the way, this will be um, emulated or this will, be, this, this will also happen in the ministry of Paul. As Paul gets farther from Jerusalem out into the larger Mediterranean world, he has greater receptivity, greater success. The closer he gets to Jerusalem, less success, less receptivity, more hostility. Okay? And so Again and again, the history of Christ's withdrawal from Judea has been repeated. She then changes, she, she switches to a historical application. When the reformers, the Protestant reformers, preached the word of God, they had no thought of separating themselves from the established church, 
but the religious leaders would not tolerate the light and those that bore those that bore the light were forced to seek another class. In our day, few of the professed followers of Jesus really have the spirit and energy of the reformers. And Ellen White here, the reason I say she's speaking autobiographically is that Ellen White became a believer in the preaching of a man named William Miller at a young age. Her family became sympathetic to the preaching of a Baptist preacher named William Miller who announced he believed that the prophecies of Daniel pointed towards Jesus' arrival sometime in or around 1843 or 1844. Well, here we are in 2021, and it's manifestly obvious that Jesus did not return in 1843 or 1844. But, but when William Miller was preaching and all of these people from the established churches believed that there was light in the preaching of William Miller and that he was on to something, and they later came to the conclusion, Ellen White and the other Adventists came to the conclusion that, that Miller had the correct date, but he had the wrong event. Now, the reason why any of this matters here is that Ellen White and others like her who became sympathetic to the preaching of William Miller were removed from their churches, right? That, that the mainstream churches, they rejected the preaching of Miller. They rejected the idea of the soon return of Jesus. And so she actually says they had to... Uh, often those who follow in the footsteps of the reformers are forced to turn away from the churches they love in order to declare the plain teaching of the word of God. She is speaking there not only historically, not only biblically, she is speaking autobiographically. That was her own experience. She had been a Methodist and then her family was actually kicked out of the Methodist church because they had become um, sympathetic to the preaching of this M M William Miller who believed that Jesus would return Soon, very soon. And he gave a specific time and a date. So she's writing here autobiographically and she's also writing historically about the circumstance with the reformers. Um, then the next paragraph, she talks about how when Jesus withdrew from Judea, he went to Galilee because she says, very interesting, the people of Galilee, though they were regarded somewhat negatively, not positively by those in Judea, sort of the country folk, you know, the rednecks, the people that live out, you know, in the sticks. What she says is very interesting. She says, the Galileans were more earnest and sincere, less under the control of bigotry, and their minds were more open for the reception of the truth. Their minds, right? Repent and believe the gospel. Metanaeo, I want to say that right. Repent and believe the gospel. Um, I'm now on page 256. She says they were a more diverse population, right? The home of a crowded population with a much larger admixture of people from other nations was found in Judea, right? So more diverse, less bigotry, more open-minded. And so Jesus, like any good fisherman, by the way, there's a saying in fishing and I mentioned yesterday, or I think it was yesterday, yesterday or the day before when I was telling the story about my friend Martin, that was yesterday, um, I was talking about how, you know, I'm a very keen fly fisherman and there's a kind of a rule in fishing um, that a lot of fishermen don't actually follow. And the rule goes like this. You don't leave fish to find fish, okay? If you have found a hole, if you have found a riffle, if you have found a bend where you are catching fish, don't think to yourself, oh, it'll be better around the corner. No, because another little rule of fishing is that about 10% of the water holds about 90% of the fish. When you're looking at a river, Fish are not uniformly distributed in that river. There are fish in certain places. And when you become a skilled fisherman, an inveterate fisherman, you, you know 
where the good water is that holds the fish. And so a lot of times I'll see people fishing in areas and I just think to myself, well, there's almost certainly not a fish there. They're just not experienced fishermen. They don't know where to be in the river. Um, by the way, I'm a terribly inexperienced fisherman when it comes to things like lakes and the ocean. I have no idea. You put me on a river and I can find the fish like that. You put me in a lake, I got no idea. You put me on the ocean, I got no idea. What Jesus does here is he says, look, the fish aren't biting here. I'm getting no reception, and so I'm gonna go over here. So he leaves Judea. He, he leaves the area where there's no biting, very little interaction. I mean, there were some, but largely not having success, and so he retires or retires is probably the wrong word there, he moves, he relocates to Galilee, okay? And uh, then she talks a little bit about Jesus' ministry in Galilee. He traveled teaching and preaching and healing. And she says, and I thought this was interesting, the enthusiasm ran so high that it was necessary to take precautions lest the Roman authorities should be aroused to fear and insurrection. The, the, the relationship between the Jews and the Romans was a, you know, a difficult relationship and the Jews hated the Romans and the Romans weren't really fond of the Jews either. And so there was always a concern if there was a large gathering or a large crowd that this could be something that could easily give way to a riot or to a, a you know, mob mentality of some kind. And so when Jesus is traveling from town to town, village to village in Galilee and crowds are thronging him, there's concern that, you know, we need to start taking precautions. We need to be wise here. This is one of the reasons that Jesus will regularly say, don't tell anybody about this. Don't tell anybody about this. Because he's trying to keep his profile low, actually. Because there was such a, a, a ripe moment, such a, such a sentiment of people looking for a deliverer, looking for a military and political Messiah. And Jesus, and we're gonna see this in John chapter six when we get there, long ways away, they're gonna just try to take Jesus and make him the king. They're gonna just like force him. They think, oh, he's demure, He's humble. They're just going to turn him into the king. And uh, Jesus is like, no, no, you don't understand it. So he has to be very careful here. And then I really like this next sentence. Never before had there been such a period as this in the world. Heaven was brought down to men, right? I mean, the Messiah is here. God is here in the flesh. He's walking from town to town, village to village. He's touching people. He's healing people. He's teaching people. I mean, this is a unique and wonderful never to be repeated, you know, moment in the history of the human experience. Jesus is becoming a man. He's come to the world for the purpose of dying. Like this is a singularity, right? It's, it's incredible what's happening. Um, and I really liked this sort of contrast here. Hungering and thirsting souls had been waiting, longing for the redemption of Israel. Now they feasted upon the grace of a merciful savior. Oh, don't you like that play on words? They were hungering and thirsting, and now they're feasting upon the grace of a merciful Savior. Um, the burden of Christ's preaching was, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. And I thought th this three-part announcement really fits nicely with the what, so what, now what motif, right? So the time is fulfilled, that's the what the what? The time is fulfilled. And we're going to talk about Daniel in just a moment. What? What is the message? The time is fulfilled. Well, so what? Um, that is, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? The time is fulfilled. That's the what. The so what is, well, the kingdom of God is here. And then the now what is, well, what do I do now? Repent and believe the gospel or change your mind and trust in the faithfulness of God as revealed in the Messiah, Jesus. 
So the what, so what, now what's really there. She then, in the next chapter, she goes into Daniel chapter 9. And we've mentioned how there were many, many Messianic prophecies that pointed to and anticipated the ministry of Jesus, the character of Jesus, even anticipating the death of Jesus. But the timing of Jesus' ministry, the arrival of Jesus' Messiah, is something that is uniquely, I don't want to say uniquely, it is especially found in the book of Daniel. And Daniel chapter 9. Now, Daniel chapter 9, which I'm going to spend just a moment here, I want to show you one extremely cool thing. Daniel chapter 9 is the, uh, is the sort of end of a, of a stream of thought that's based on Daniel, a stream of prophetic thought that's based on Daniel 2, Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and then Daniel 9. Daniel 9 is the arrival of Messiah. It's absolutely incredible. I'm, I'm not going to set the whole context up. But Ellen White does quote fairly extensively here from the last one, two, three, four verses of Daniel chapter nine. And in Daniel chapter nine, this is where the angel Gabriel appears to Daniel and gives this very interesting announcement about the timing of the arrival of Messiah. And there are a great many people that read this section, I mean, Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 to 27, that do not understand the flow of what's going on here. And so I'm just going to take a moment to sort of explain to you how to read this and it's significant and why Ellen White is quoting it. Jesus' ministry and his sense of identity and of the work that God had called him to do is unmistakably following a certain trajectory, okay? And that trajectory goes like this. Messiah will be rejected and the consequence will be that Jerusalem will be destroyed. So you just got to get those two ideas in your mind. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Jesus will say this again and again. He hasn't said it yet, but he will say it again and again in his ministry. He'll say it in a parable in Matthew chapter 21. He'll say it expressly in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus understood Messiah would be rejected and the consequence of that rejection would be the protection of God being forfeited, the city, Jerusalem and the temple would be destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Get that in your mind. Now, where did Jesus get this idea from? Where, where did that notion come from, that sort of template of how Jesus' ministry was going to go? Well, the answer is he got it from Daniel, and he got it from this very passage that Ellen White is quoting extensively here, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9, Daniel chapter 9. And I'm just going to show you something very interesting. In Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, this is where the angel... Gabriel has appeared to uh, Daniel and has announced to him these two events. But what happens is, is that these two events, the rejection of Messiah and the destruction of the city, are so intertwined that to many people, it, it, they can't follow it. It doesn't make a lot of sense. So the reason they can't follow it is that the whole section is set up in an A-B structure. And by the way, much of Old Testament poetry, much of Hebrew poetry hinges on this A-B, A-B. You say a thing, and then you say another thing, then you return to your original thing, and then you're sort of doing this bum, 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 bum. And it's this idea of recapitulation. You say something, and then you say it in a slightly different way, right? And so there are many instances of this. A really easy example is Psalm 119, 105. Thy word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Adan, da da dun. 
And if you look for this, this recapitulation motif, you'll find it again and again and again. Just read it through the Psalms. You can't read two minutes in the Psalms without encountering this motif, right? Where the psalmist will say something and then he'll say another thing very similar. And that is also part of the sort of larger way that Hebrew poetry work. You have these different sort of structures. So A, B, A, B, A, B is one of those structures. You also have a structure that's like a, an ascending and descending staircase referred to as a chiasm where you have like an A, B, C, B, A. Okay, there's lots of these and I've, I've talked about many of them in my preaching over the years. But what happens in Daniel chapter nine, verses 24 to 27 is an A, B, A, B, A, B, A, B structure. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna read the whole thing through with it all kind of jumbled together. And if you don't know where the divisions are, you're gonna be like, I, I can, this is important, but I don't understand it. And there's a lot of people that say, yeah, that's important, but I don't understand it. So let me read it. Daniel chapter nine, beginning in verse 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people. Remember, this is the angel speaking to Daniel. The angel speaking to Daniel, giving him an interpretation of the prophecy that earlier in Daniel chapter eight, he had not understood. He's prayed this beautiful prayer in Daniel chapter nine. And then now this is the angel Gabriel explaining to Daniel what happens. Okay. 70 weeks are determined for your people, the Jews, and for your holy city, Jerusalem. Six things. To finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up the vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. 70 weeks. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem unto Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks. The street will be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it will be with a flood until the end of the war desolations are determined. Then he will confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. On the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay, that's not easy to understand and I'm not pretending that it is, but one of the reasons that it's more difficult to understand than it should be is that when people just read it through like I just did there and it's all cobbled together, they're not setting the A parts with the A parts and the B parts with the B part. So what I'm gonna do now is I'm gonna reread verses 25, 26, and 27 and I'm going to just read the A part of 25, the A part of 26, the A part of 27. And you'll see that all of them have to do with the same thing, okay? Messiah rejected, city destroyed. All of these first little bits are going to have to do with Messiah. All of the B parts have to do with the city. Okay, now see if you can follow this. I'm just gonna read only the first half of 25, the first half of 26, and the first half of 27. And you'll see, it flows, it makes total sense. Okay, so 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command, to restore and rebuild Jerusalem unto Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. And after the 62 weeks, Messiah will be cut off, but not for himself. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. Makes total sense. That 70 weeks were determined for a period of 490 years were determined for the Jewish people from this command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem which took place in 457. I'm not going into the specific details here. But basically, there's gonna be a period of 69 weeks and then in, at the end of that 69 weeks, Messiah will come, he'll confirm the covenant with one week, that's the 70th week, and in the middle of the week, he'll be cut off, but not for himself, 
right? So all of that has to do with the Messiah, the Messiah's arrival. Even if you didn't get all the details, that's okay. It has to do with the arrival of the Messiah, the timing of that arrival, and then the death of Messiah, okay? Now what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna read all of the B parts, okay? So I'm gonna do the same thing I just did and notice that everything in the B parts of 25, 26, and 27 has to do with the city, okay? So Messiah, city. Now, here we go. The street shall be built again and the wall, even in troublesome times. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it will be with a flood. Until the end of the war, desolations are determined. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Okay. Whether or not you followed every detail of that, it's really, really simple in, in terms of the larger picture here of what's happening. What Daniel is describing is Messiah will come at a certain time. He will do a certain work for a certain period of time. He'll be cut off in the middle of that time. And as a consequence of that, the city will be destroyed by a pagan flood. Not, not a literal flood, but by a flood of people that will come and destroy the city. And so you can summarize all of that just like this. The Messiah will come and be rejected. The Messiah will come at a specific time and be rejected and the city will be destroyed not long after. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. Messiah rejected, city destroyed. And Jesus says this himself. In Matthew chapter 21, he tells a parable to this effect. We'll get there. In Matthew chapter 24, Jesus makes it abundantly clear. And so what Ellen White is doing in this chapter is she's saying the religious leadership, the Jewish people did not know the time of their visitation. They didn't understand that the consequence of not seeing and understanding who and what Messiah was would be the destruction of their beloved city and temple, right? They were so busy doing something important, or excuse me, they were so busy doing something that they thought was urgent, rabbinical traditions, hating the Romans, um, you know, keeping themselves distant from the surrounding nations, fastidious, uh, you know, uh, fastidious regard for not being socially contaminated. All of these things seem super urgent. So this thing over here is happening. They're looking at their phone. And the actual important thing that's happening is you're driving a car. Messiah is here. And, and that's what Ellen White does in this chapter. She steps back and she says, when, when Jesus withdrew from Judea, that, that was, that's a, that's a, she uses that as an, an, an analogy, a metaphor for the fact that that people often don't recognize the thing that's happening. Right here, there's a thing happening. Messiah is here. Messiah is doing a thing. And she goes to Daniel chapter nine and talks about how all of this was expected. And so the word for our, our chapter this today is time. Time. Of course it's time, right? Repent, look at this. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. And again and again and again and again and again, she says the time, the time, the time. The Jews did not understand the time of their visitation. She talks about the marching of truth during the period of the Protestant reformers. They didn't understand it was a time of reformation. And then she makes the obvious application, which is that while many miss the timing of Jesus, how does she say it? I underline that. Yeah, the message of Christ's first advent announced the kingdom of his grace. I like that. The message of Christ's first advent, advent means arrival, coming. The message of Christ's first advent announced the kingdom of his grace. So the message of his second advent 
announces the kingdom of his glory. And so what she's saying is, many people miss the time of his first arrival, and there's an equal danger that people will miss the timing of the second advent. Okay, Jesus came the first time to die and to live and to heal and to be resurrected. When he returns the second time, as the author of Hebrews says, he returns a second time without sin unto salvation. Jesus is not coming back to die on the cross again. That's an event of history. That's a singularity. That happened one time. Jesus will return, and she makes this incredible transition from the first advent to the second advent. She says that many miss the time And now they're going to, now today, she says, the prophecies are fast fulfilling. And she's describing the prophecies of Daniel, the prophecies of Revelation. She's saying many are going to miss the time, the timing now. And so I thought it was a a great chapter. She, She just says it expressly right there in the third to the last paragraph on page 258, 235 of the original. We have reached the period foretold in the scriptures. The time of the end is come The visions of the prophets are unsealed and their solemn warnings point us to our Lord's coming in glory as near at hand. All of that, she's saying, is based on the writings of Daniel, the writings of John in Revelation, and the writings of Paul and the sayings of Jesus, which incidentally, just a word on this, she actually alludes to this. The ministry of Paul, the writings of Paul, were very dependent, particularly in their prophetic um, aspect, on the book of Daniel. This is obvious in 1 Thessalonians, and we'll get there eventually. Paul knew the book of Daniel. Jesus knew the book of Daniel. In fact, Jesus actually says in Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, in that sermon where he's talking about rejection of Messiah, destruction of city. Rejection of Messiah, rejection of city. In that very chapter, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus says, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. That's the passage we just read. We literally just read it. I'll read it again. This is the very last bit of Daniel chapter nine. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate. That's the abomination of desolation. And so Jesus himself quotes that passage and says, Matthew chapter 24, verse 15, when you therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, let him who reads understand. Right? He says, what I'm telling you is based on Daniel and you should understand the book of Daniel. That's what he's saying. So the ministry of Paul, the ministry of John, the revelator, and the ministry of Jesus were all significantly based on the calendar, the clock, the timetable of the book of Daniel that announced the time is fulfilled. Change your mind and trust in God's faithfulness as revealed in the Messiah. And then a great little thread that she pulls from the last chapter, which was the death and imprisonment of John, and how drunkenness and inebriation played a role in Herod's fickle and rash promise about anything up to the half of, half of the kingdom. And she talks, we talked yesterday about alcohol a little bit. I think this is great. She, she throws in here, take heed to yourselves. She's quoting now from Luke chapter 21. She's quoting from Jesus in that very same sermon, the equivalent of Matthew chapter 24. Jesus says, take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing and drunkenness and the cares of this life, right? The urgent, the seemingly urgent. And then what's the very last word of this whole chapter? Listen to this. Quoting from 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 4 to 6, the last word is sober. The last word is sober. 
I'll read you the whole thing here. But you brothers and sisters are not in darkness so that this day, the second advent, not the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of glory, right? Jesus came the first time to announce the kingdom of grace. He comes the second time to announce the kingdom of glory, which of course is a product of the kingdom of grace. There is no kingdom of glory without the kingdom of grace. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. While we are not to know the hour of our Lord's return, we may know when it is near. We may know the approximate time. Therefore, let us not sleep as do others, but let us watch and be sober. And I thought, man, that's really great. That's a really cool thing that she did there, contrasting the drunkenness with the sobriety and pulling that thread from the last chapter where drunkenness, where inebriation caused Herod to make a rash promise that eventuated in the death of what Jesus said was the greatest prophet to have lived. Um, so that's our chapter here. We do not want to be, we do not want to be those people that are not aware of the time, right? When, when you're driving a car, that's the thing you're doing. That's the important thing. You're doing that right now. That's the time in which you're living. You're in your car. If you want to pull your car over at a rest stop and look at your phone, fine. But don't let the seemingly urgent distract you from the actually important. Ooh, I like that. Don't let the seemingly urgent distract you from the actually important. Right? There were many things that seemed really important in first century Judaism. And none of them were actually important. None of them were actually things that mattered, right? Like social contamination and, you know, getting rid of Messiah. I mean, these things, no. And so too with us. It's a really great little illustration here. The things that we think are super urgent that we just have to look at our phones for, 99.9% of them are not urgent enough to cause you to look down from driving. That's the thing we're doing. And so do not let the seemingly urgent occupy you or distract you from the genuinely important, the actually important. And um, she then describes, you know, and she does this, I should just show you this, you know, all of these little orange circles here are time, 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 time. She's saying, know the time in which you live. Know the time, know the time, know the time, know the time in which you live. There are important things and there are urgent things. And make sure that you are occupied with the actually important things, okay? The close, and we'll talk about this more, the close of probation, national probation, did come to the Jewish nation. The Apostle Paul says it. I mean, he just says it expressly, and he has Daniel 9 in mind. When Paul and Barnabas say this, I'm quoting from, I think it's Acts 13. Acts 13, this is Paul's first missionary journey. Acts 13 Paul has found himself in Antioch and listen to what he says here. Listen to what he says here. I'll just read you a little bit. Um, I'm reading in verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. We're in this transition, the close of the 70 weeks where the, the, the probation, national probation for the Jewish nation is closing and the world, the gospel going to the Gentile world, which was always a part of the Abrahamic contention and promise is now ripening. Verse 43, I'm in Acts 13, 43. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and the devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who speaking to them persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next day, almost the whole city came near to hear the word of God. That's a lot of Gentiles. Verse 45, but when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy 
and contradicting and blaspheming, they oppose the things spoken by Paul. Paul's talking about Jesus. He's talking about his identity. He's talking about the prophecies of Daniel. And they're resisting it. And look at what Paul and Barnabas say in verse 46. Such an important verse. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, quote, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy, we've talked a lot about that. We, can, we pass judgment on ourselves. Our own thoughts become our accusers. But since you reject the word of God and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. That's Acts 13, 46. Like Paul understood what Jesus is describing, what Daniel anticipated, and what John describes. That, that there would be a transition. The Abrahamic promise will be fulfilled. The gospel will go to the world. And the Jewish nation as a nation could have had the privilege of being the messengers, being the proclaimers, being the heralds, but they forfeited that privilege. Now to be clear, they did not forfeit the opportunity for individuated salvation. No one has forfeited that. Right? Collectively, people do not lose. God doesn't write off whole groups of people and say, well, you can no longer be saved. That's not the thing that was forfeited by the Jewish nation. Salvation was not forfeited. Individual Jews. I have friends who are Jewish, of Jewish descent, and they are firm, committed believers in Jesus Christ. God can save a Jew. God can save a Jamaican. Right? God can save uh, somebody from Russia. God can save somebody from America. The thing that was forfeited was not access to salvation, not access to grace. It was the privilege of being the messengers of the good news. The time is, by the way, I've got to quit here, but Jesus takes the mantle. Jesus takes the role of Israel. He becomes Israel. He begins to talk to Roman centurions and Samaritan women. And it, he's showing that the gospel was never parochial. It was never insular. God's truth was never for a small regional group of people, some genetic elite. It was always for the world. And the thing that was forfeited by the Jews in the 70-week prophecy was not opportunity for individual salvation. No, 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 no. The thing that was forfeited was the opportunity and the privilege and the prerogative to be God's uniquely positioned covenantal messengers. No wonder then that when Jesus calls his disciples, he calls 12, not 10, not 11, not nine, 12. Jesus is reconstituting Israel. That's the simplest way to say it. When Jesus calls 12 disciples, he's reconstituting Israel. And if I'm not mistaken, in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, I'm just pulling this one out. Luke chapter 12, verse 32. Let me see if I'm remembering correctly. Jesus says, do not be afraid, little flock, speaking to his disciples. Do not be afraid, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. What Jesus is doing in Luke chapter 12, verse 32, and in the ordaining of 12 disciples is he's reconstituting Israel to become those people that will in fact not be insular and, and separated from and afraid of social contamination, but they will take the gospel to the world. So that's the chapter here. And the chapter is a great chapter and it really hones in on the what, so what, now what. What? The time is fulfilled. So what? Repent for the, excuse me, the kingdom of God is at hand. Now what? Repent and believe the gospel. Change your mind and trust in God's faithfulness in Christ and let's now do our rubric. This has been a great breather. We've switched tracks from largely 
the John trajectory of the Gospels, and now we're over on the Matthew, Mark, Luke. Okay? And so let's do our, uh, let's do our rubric very quickly. Um, what is the point? So we go through the point, the person, the prayer, the practice, and then we claim the promise. Okay, what is the point of this chapter? What is the point of this chapter? The time is fulfilled. Right? Did I get the chapter name right? Oh, the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the point of this chapter? Chapter 23, the kingdom of God is at hand. Get that? I want to make sure I get that all right. Yeah, chapter 23, the kingdom of God is at hand. Here we go. The point is to take a breath from the narrative flow and to allow for a switch from primarily John's gospel to the synoptics and to set the biblical prophetic stage for the advents of Jesus, first and second, the kingdom of grace and the kingdom of glory. It's a zoom out, take in the big prophetic picture, and then make the applications, not just looking down our long noses at the historical Jews and the Jewish leadership and saying, man, they missed it, man, they should have known better, and all the while we're driving around looking at our phone, you know, by way of analogy, we're doing the same thing. We're occupying ourselves with the things that are urgent but not important. So the point of this chapter is to say, you can't just point the finger because as the old saying goes, when you point the finger at someone else, there are three fingers pointing back at yourself. All right, so we can look historically and point the finger and say, they should have, they could have, they didn't. But okay, fine, fine. Fair enough. The, 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 the Bible does say, judging yourselves unworthy, we turn to the Gentiles. But, but the larger story here is what's the lesson for you? It can't just be a lesson of condemnation or contempt for historical people that have long since passed. What's the lesson for you? What matters most, the important or the urgent? And say, that's the point. So then the person, what do we learn about God in this chapter? We learn, I wrote down, that God is both precise and patient. He's precise on his timetable and he's patient, precise and patient. This is alluded to this very prophecy and this notion of being precise and patient is alluded to in Matthew chapter 18 when Jesus, in response to Peter's question, how often should I forgive my brother? Seven times? Should I forgive my brother seven times? And Jesus says, no, 70 times seven. 70 times seven. That is a reference to the 490-year prophecy, the 70-week prophecy of Daniel chapter nine. God is precise and patient. He's patient, yet precise. That's what we learn about God here. There is a great calendar. There is a great clock. There is a great storyline. And God is following that storyline. When Jesus announced the kingdom of God is at hand, the time is fulfilled, repent and believe the gospel. He was right on time. We've already talked about Galatians 4.4. When the fullness of time had come, that was the title of one of our chapters, God sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law. There's a timetable here. There's a calendar here. There's a clock here. Okay, what's our prayer? Okay, well, this is a great one. Father, help me and teach me not to miss Jesus' second advent like many missed his first. Right? I don't want to just sit here on my high horse with historical retrospective contempt for those that blew it the first time. I want to learn the lesson and not miss Jesus' second advent like many missed his first. I don't want to miss the kingdom of glory. And so that's my prayer. Father, help me to occupy myself not with the seemingly urgent, but with the actually important. And that's the practice. Practice here is our fourth 
I want to study the prophecies and tell others about them. At every opportunity, I want to uplift Jesus and his beauty. That's what I want to do. That's my practice. I want to know the prophecies myself, the prophecies of Daniel and of Revelation and the Old Testament prophets and the writings of Paul and the sayings of Jesus. I want to know these great prophetic streams and themes and then at every opportunity, every available opportunity, I want to tell people about the incredible beauty of God, the faithfulness of God, the, the incomparable uninventability of Jesus. And so, yeah, I want to know these prophecies and not just know them in some intellectual or abstract sense. I want to, be, I want to put my phone down, so to speak, and occupy myself with the things that really matter in life. Not the seemingly urgent, but the actually important. And I'm sure you want to do the same. All right, well, that's our lesson today. We'll be back tomorrow at about the same time. I don't know when it'll be. Our chapter tomorrow is going to be a good one. What's the chapter tomorrow titled? Oh, is this not the carpenter's son? This is one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of Luke. Luke chapter four. Mm, There's some real, there's some meaty goodness in Luke chapter four. So, I'll see you all tomorrow. It looks like the YouTube stream has died. We'll figure that out eventually, but let's close with prayer. Father in heaven, we want, we want to be aware of the things that actually matter, the things that are not just important, but supremely important, incomparably important. And Father, forgive us where we have at times looked with historical contempt on those that missed the first advent of Jesus, say, how could they have missed it? How could? And Father, may it not be the case for even one of us that we are looking with historical contempt on them and saying, how could they have? And all the while, we do the same thing with the second advent. Father in heaven, we have the historical record of the first advent of Jesus and the arrival of the kingdom of grace. We also have the prophetic anticipation of the second coming of Jesus, the second advent of Jesus, and the arrival of the kingdom of glory. Father, we want to be citizens of, participants in, and proclaimers of the kingdom of grace so that we will be ready to look up into the heavens and say, this is our God. We have waited for him and he will save us when the kingdom of glory arrives. We love you, we thank you, and we pray for today a good day, a good day in which Jesus is foremost in our thoughts, the what, so, what, now, what. Father, may we be mindful, ever mindful today of the things that actually matter in this life is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.